you'll have a, a testimony that Neil Cameron, who's just coming in just now, will share. Uh, so this evening at six o'clock, uh, Neil Cameron uh, will be sharing his testimony. Uh, so be encouraged to tune in uh, for that. I'm sure it will be a great encouragement. YF, I think, is on tonight at half past seven online. Uh, so you know what to do, those of that age. And the prayer meeting will be on Wednesday at uh, half past seven on Zoom as usual. One further intimation is just to say that on the first Sunday in June, that Sunday the 6th of June, uh, we hope to have uh, communion services, one in the morning and one in the evening. Uh, So we've kind of worked out the logistics of how that can be done within uh, these restrictions. Um, And uh, I think it should be possible for everybody who wants to to take communion to to be able to do so uh, the way things are worked out. So that's the 6th of June. Uh, we hope to have a communion service in the morning and in the evening. And if there are those who may be here or those who may be watching online who haven't taken communion before, haven't come forward and professed faith in Christ, and uh, who would wish to do so, uh, then be encouraged to come and speak to me or any of the elders at this point. Um, But that's a date for your diary. It's a few weeks away. Um, But the 6th of June, uh, we hope to have a uh, two communion services, one in the morning and one in Let's uh, unite our hearts in prayer. Let's, let's. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your day. Uh, we thank you for the psalm that we have heard sung. And we thank you, Lord, for the fact uh, that we are able as sinners to be turned unto thee. We thank you that you have opened up a way through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Saviour. And we thank you that although we our sinners, as the psalmist was, and as the psalmist confessed, we would add our amen to that as we look back over our lives, as you look back over, even over the last week, we are conscious of the things that we've done that we shouldn't have, the things that we've said and thought that we shouldn't have, and we're conscious also of the things that we have left undone and that we've been silent over. We're conscious, Lord, that the praise that you are due, uh, we often are slow to give. We're conscious that often... Uh, Our lives become more about self than they are about Christ. And so we confess, Lord, that we are sinners, but we thank you that we can be turned to you, that the way is opened through Jesus. We thank you that uh, once more on this Sunday morning, we turn to the cross and we remember uh, that Jesus died on that cross to pay the price for our sin. We thank you that he took the punishment that we were due. And we thank you that he rose from the dead on that Lord's day, that first Lord's day, and the promise of salvation, the promise of an open way into your presence was secured in and through the finished work of Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for that once more. We must never drift from the cross. We must never take our eyes off that open tomb. We thank you, Lord, that that is where our hope is. In Christ alone, our hope is found. So enable us to know know the the joy of of that hope, the joy of your salvation uh, this morning. We know the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so we pray that we would know your strength, that we would know your presence. We pray, Lord, that we would not uh, resist uh, your call, that we would not stand back and, and hesitate. But we pray that as we hear the call of salvation, that you would enable each of us to come. Uh, those who may never have responded to the call of Jesus. We pray that there might be someone 
even here today, that would confess sin and come to Jesus for the first time. Pray for any who may have been wandering of late, as we are prone to do. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that as we return to you, you promise that you will return to us. And we pray that if there are any in that place, uh, that that we would come to you. And for those, Lord, who are walking with you, uh, we acknowledge that we need your strength. We need you every hour. And so we pray that you would help us to to trust you, uh, to obey you, and to know that happiness of walking with Jesus. We pray, Lord, for all those who are in need this morning. We think of those who grieve, and we pray for your comfort for them. Think especially of uh, Shona, and we ask that you would minister to her where she is this morning. Uh, Lord, that she would know uh, your presence with her, and that abiding sense of peace that has been in the home over these weeks. We miss Ian, but we thank you, Lord, that uh, uh, there is hope into eternity, a hope that he took hold of in Christ. We pray for the McKellers as well, as they, as they feel that sense of loss uh, with uh, Kirsty's father, uh, Dr. Hay, going from time to eternity. We thank you for the brightness of his witness, but we pray, Lord, that uh, the family would know your comfort and would know your hand upon them. We pray for those who... Uh, struggle with loneliness, uh, those who haven't been able to come back to church yet and who have felt a long period of isolation, and we ask that they would know uh, your your presence, uh, that they would be still and know that you are God and that you are with them today. We pray for those who are battling with addiction, some who are battling and, and struggling and falling at this point, and uh, we ask that you would help them, Lord, give to them the strength uh, that only you can give. And Lord, we thank you for the encouragements and the blessings that you, that you give to us. And uh, we, we thank you especially for we, Joseph, uh, John, with us for the first time today. And we pray your hand of blessing to be upon him. We, uh, we love to hear just these gentle noises. And we ask that he would grow up uh, to know you and to trust you. And again, we pray for uh, your hand on Andrew and Iona and the wider family. Uh, bless them, we pray. And bless all our young people, those who will be at Sunday school, those who will watch at home, those who will meet this evening uh, on Zoom for YF, uh, those who gather in school at SU. Uh, We pray for them all. We pray for the students, those who are preparing to to go back to university, those who are coming to an end of their training and wondering what comes next. We commit each one to you, Lord, uh, those who are young and those who are slightly older and studying as well. And we pray that you would guide them and uh, as they acknowledge you, that you would direct their path. So hear our prayers and uh, bless us in this day, we pray. We thank you, Lord, for uh, your goodness to us. We thank you for the peace, the security uh, that we enjoy in this country. We pray on for places where there's uh, far from that. We think of India. Uh, We think of uh, Nepal at this time where we see uh, so much suffering. And we thank you that we can connect with these countries through prayer, uh, Lord, as we think of them, and as we think of those that we cannot reach physically, we pray that you would reach them in the power of your spirit and through your people as we bring them to you in prayer. So hear our prayers, take away our sin, keep our eyes on Jesus, we pray, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And we'll turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 9, please, and we'll read from verse 37 through to the end of the chapter. This is God's word. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him, that's Jesus. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, 
I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. O unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and made him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you, all, he is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name. And we try to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to Jerusalem, uh, to heaven, sorry, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan's village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air of nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Amen. And may God bless that reading of his word to us. Pray just for a moment again. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you also for the promise that... uh, You will help us to understand. And we acknowledge that without the help of your spirit, we cannot understand. We're like the disciples. Everything is hidden from us. So open our eyes, Lord, we pray, as we look at the words of Scripture. Open our ears as we hear the words of Jesus and stir our hearts. uh, Open them and uh, enable them to be like the soft, uh, good ground into which the seed of God's word went. So hear our prayers. Help us, Lord as we uh, look to you and as we listen to you. We pray for the children. We ask that you would be with them too as they hear the message of the gospel simply in Sunday school. We pray for the churches around us as well. We thank you that in all the churches around us, the gospel message is being proclaimed here. And we ask, Lord, that you would add your blessing. We pray that you would use your word to seek and save the lost. We pray that you would build your church. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I want to um, I want to look at a fair chunk of um, of text today as we've read through, 
And so I'm conscious of time, and I'm also conscious I've been a bit uh, too long the last few weeks. So uh, I'm going to skip the introduction and just get straight into it. So if you could open your Bibles at uh, Luke chapter 9 and uh, verse 37. And the context there, uh, if you can remember back two weeks, is that Jesus has come down from the mountain where he was transfigured. And something of the glory of heaven on that mountain uh, broke through into this world. Uh, the, the, the disciples who had had this promise, uh, they, they saw something of the, the kingdom of God in a powerful, in a special way on the top of that mountain. And so that's the transfiguration. We, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago. And then Jesus and the disciples, they come down from the mountain. Peter doesn't want to go. But Jesus says they have to come down from the mountain. And he takes them, in a sense, back to the the classroom. And Jesus continues uh, to to teach the disciples uh, what it actually means to be a disciple of Jesus. So that's our theme today. We've kind of had this theme over uh, the, the course of studies in Luke, and it kind of comes and goes. But I want to look today at various lessons that we need to learn if we are uh, disciples of Jesus. And the first lesson is a lesson about power. So for those taking notes, point number one, it's a lesson about power. Verses 37 to verse uh, 40. Uh, The next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met Jesus. And a man from the crowd uh, called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. The spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams It throws him into convulsions, so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him, and it's destroying him. This distraught father says, I begged one of your disciples to drive it out, but they, they could not. And we can imagine the disciples' embarrassment and the disciples' uh, confusion and their frustration at what had happened here. Because if you glance back to the beginning of Luke chapter 9 and at verse 1, we read that the disciples, uh, they had power and authority to drive out demons. They'd been doing this. But now it seems they have no power. A bit like the lights in the prayer meeting room. You know, we have the fittings on the, the wall or the ceiling. And we have the bulbs inside the fittings. But when you flick the switch, nothing happens. There's no power getting through. And that was like the disciples. There's no power coming through them. So we have this distraught father who rushes to Jesus for help for his son. Because the disciples have no power to help. And the question, I think, that comes to our minds as we think about this is, is why? Why is it that the disciples are able to, to cast out demons in chapter 9, verse 1? But when you get to chapter 9, verse 40, they can't. And the answer to that question is that in chapter 9, verse 1, it says that Jesus gave them power to cast out demons. But in chapter 9, verse 40, they're trying to do things themselves. And you might wonder where we're told that, and we have to go to Mark's gospel to find that out. You don't need to go there just now, but Mark kind of takes us behind the scenes. And uh, Mark allows us to hear this conversation between Jesus and the disciples in Mark 9, verses 28 to 29. It says, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? Why couldn't we drive this demon out? And Jesus says, this kind can only come out by prayer. So Jesus says to his disciples, you don't have the power to cast out demons. Only God can do it. 
And because you didn't pray, because you didn't ask God to do it, because you didn't seek the, the help, the power of God, you couldn't do anything. But Jesus, who was and is the God-man, he, he had power. Verse 41 Jesus rebukes them. He says, Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. This is something the father had seen so many times. We can imagine the distress that that caused as he sees his son once more being thrown to the ground by this demonic force and starting to convulse and foam at the mouth. He sees his, his beloved son being destroyed uh, from the inside out. And that was the pattern. The convulsions, thrown to the ground, foaming at the mouth, and another increment of destruction. But when God intervenes, when God the, the Son steps into this situation, the evil spirit is disabled, destruction is reversed, and the boy is healed. Jesus, verse 42, rebuked the evil spirit. He healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness, at the power of God. And you know, what we see at the, the micro level, the, the personal level in this encounter, uh, is true on a larger scale. The sin that Emily told us about, the sin that's in us, that destroys us from the inside out. The enemy who attacks us at any given opportunity. Uh, we have no power to overcome these things. We can try religion. We can try good works. We can try any manner of self-help programs, but we don't have power to be able to reverse that destructive process. We have no power to overcome sin. We have no power to overcome uh, Satan. But Jesus has that power. And Jesus promises that he will save, that he will bring eternal healing to everyone who calls on him, to everyone who comes to him, as this father did on behalf of of his son. Have you come to Jesus yet for this forgiveness, for this power, for this healing? And fathers and mothers, are we are we coming to, to Jesus asking for his power, his salvation to be given to our children, to those that we love? So that's rule number one for the for the disciple. Uh, always remember power comes from God. We don't look inside ourselves for some inner strength, because we won't find it. Power comes from God. Apart from me, says Jesus, you can do nothing. We can't even keep on going. Never mind resist the devil. So we need to stay connected to God. We need his power. That's lesson number one. A lesson about power. Uh, lesson number two, uh, we have a lesson about patience. So who needed patience in, this, in these verses as we step through them? Well, uh, first of all, we see that Jesus needed patience in dealing with the disciples and we see, secondly, uh, under this heading, that Jesus' disciples needed patience as they followed Jesus. So first of all, Jesus, he needed patience to deal with the disciples. Because in verse 44 and 45, we see Jesus trying to get through to the disciples again the fact that he must suffer and he must die. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, Jesus said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. And if you just flick back for a, a moment to, to verse 22, we see Jesus uh, has a first attempt in that verse to explain to his disciples uh, that his mission uh, was to be this mission. 
of being betrayed, of suffering, of dying. But they just don't get it. And Mark, again, gives us a bit more detail in Mark chapter 8, verse 32. He tells us that Peter, not only did he not get what Jesus was saying, uh, but he didn't like what Jesus was saying. And so he rebuked Jesus and said, stop saying it. It's not the way it's going to be, Jesus. You're not going to go down this path of suffering. You're not going to go to a cross. Stop talking like that. And yet if Jesus had done what Peter had asked and avoided the cross, then today Peter would be in hell. And we would still be in our sin. I'd have nothing to preach. No good news. See, the disciples just didn't seem to be able to grasp that the Messiah needed to suffer and needed to go to a cross and die and rise for our salvation. They just didn't get it at this point. But note that Jesus doesn't get mad with them. I mean, how quick we are to become frustrated when we have to say the same thing two and three times. Jesus has these disciples who are so slow to learn on so many fronts. But he doesn't get furious with them. He doesn't go looking for a a smarter team of disciples to make uh, some progress with. He's patient with them, just as he's patient with us, just as we should be patient with each other. So Jesus is patient in his dealings with the disciples. Uh, And we see, uh, secondly here, that uh, the disciples needed to be patient as they tried to follow Jesus. Because we find them in verse 45, and they're scratching their heads. They just don't understand what Jesus is saying. But Luke tells us why it is that they don't understand. Uh, He tells us in verse 45, it was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Now, we know those of us who have children and grandchildren, they love to ask questions. Question after question after question. And that's a healthy thing. We, we like to hear the questions. It's, it's how they learn. But sometimes they ask questions that their little minds just aren't yet ready to grasp. And so we, we might say to them, well, I will tell you, um, but just when you're a wee bit older. Not, not today. And for the disciples of Jesus, uh, with their finite minds, they needed patience. Because at this point, they weren't yet ready to grasp what Jesus had to say to them. They wouldn't understand until later. And yet, even though they, they didn't understand everything, they, they still kept following Jesus. They didn't throw everything up in the air and say, this is useless, I can't understand, I'm finished. No, they, they don't understand, but they, they keep on following. And we're often there with them in, in that area. Uh, there are parts of the Bible, I'm sure, that we struggle to understand. Uh, there are aspects of God's character We just can't grasp with our finite minds. There are some of the ways and works of God, the providences of God, what he allows to come into our lives and what sometimes he doesn't take away from our lives. And it's a mystery to us. It's hidden from us. So what are we to do when we're with the disciples, scratching our heads, not understanding what God is saying or what God is doing in our lives? What are we to do? Well, we're just to trust him. Trust him with the things We don't understand and keep on following. So a lesson about power, a lesson about patience. Uh, Thirdly, we have a lesson about pride. And we see in verse 46 that an argument starts among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. It's one of these situations where you kind of listen in here uh, and you want to look away. You, You just want to cringe as you overhear this conversation. Because let's remember the context Let's remember the context so we'll see just how inappropriate this conversation was. 
Peter and James and John, they've just been on the, the mountain of transfiguration. They, they've, they've seen the glory of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus with their own eyes. And then the remaining nine disciples at the bottom of the, the mountain, uh, they've seen so much of the greatness of Jesus through the signs and the miracles that he's performed. And so one would think they would be humbled in the presence of Jesus. One would think that they would just be transfixed with the greatness of Jesus and they wouldn't be thinking about themselves. But that's not the case. See, pride and self-preoccupation, you know, it goes right down deep. Uh, some people have been at some point in their lives to the dentist for, for root canal treatment. I've never had that, thankfully, but uh, those who have described it to me, it sounds excruciating. They have a pain somewhere deep in the, in the root of the tooth. And so the dentist has to go in and in and in and call them back on various occasions to drill right down to get to the very bottom of the infection. Somewhere deep in the roots. And pride in the disciples back then and in us today goes down deep. Much deeper than we think. J.C. Ryle says, Of all the sins, there is none against which we have such need to watch and pray as pride. No sin is so deeply rooted in our nature. It cleaves to us like skin. Its roots never entirely die. They are ready at any moment to spring up. And so here, that's what we see happen. Pride springs up in this argument. And Jesus, he doesn't just turn away and shake his head. Jesus, he doesn't, he still doesn't allow pride to go unchecked. We tend to think of pride as maybe one of the lesser sins, but it's not what we find in biblical terms. Pride is at the root of almost every sin. And so Jesus, he deals with it. Jesus, verse 47, knowing their thoughts, he took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least, least smallest among you, he is the greatest. See, kingdom values turn everything upside down. Milner commentator says Jesus taught them that small is great in his kingdom. Children in Jesus' society had no voice in public life, nor were they consulted when important decisions were made. Nor did they seek greatness or power themselves. And so Jesus takes this little child and he says, here is an example of who you're to be. Childlike, humble, small. Remember the quote from uh, Winston Churchill when he was uh, battling with one of his political enemies. Uh, he, he spoke about, I can't remember the, the, the name of the man that he was criticizing, but he said, uh, he's a humble man with so much to be humble about. That was his insult. He dismissed his opponent with, he's a humble man, but he has so much to be humble about. Think about Jesus, the most humble man who ever walked on this earth. Who was he? He was God. He was the God man, and yet he humbled himself. Paul reflects on that in Philippines uh, chapter 2, verses 3 to 8. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to your, the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know, if we are disciples of Jesus, if we're followers of Jesus, we need to learn day by day, hour by hour even, to put pride to death, to walk humbly with our God, to humble ourselves like Jesus did. You know, we'll never be effective ambassadors for Christ, ever, if we harbor this pride in our hearts. And for those who are not yet in Christ, any who may be here, any who may be watching, you know, what is it that holds you back? You know, nine out of ten times, I think, it's pride. You know, we like to pay our own way. We, we, like, to, we like to earn our own place. We like to put something into the, the things that we benefit from. Uh, we don't like charity. But to become a Christian, we can't pay our own way. Jesus had to pay our own way for us. And if we want to become those who are in Christ, we, we have to come uh, with empty hands and simply ask him to give us his charity, his grace. It's humiliating, it's humbling, but it's wonderful. It's grace. I heard Adam playing it um, just before I came through. Uh, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless come to thee for grace. See, to come to, to Jesus, we need to repent of pride. And to be followers of Jesus, we need to keep on repenting of pride. So a lesson about pride, that's the third point. Fourth point, a lesson about being peacemakers. Jesus uh, called his disciples, um, without compromising the gospel, without going uh, soft on truth, he called his disciples to be peacemakers. Matthew 5, 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. James, in his little letter, in verse uh, 16 to 18 of chapter 3, says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. And the disciples, sometimes they were far too trigger-happy. And we see two examples of that here. First of all, in the way that they deal with other Christians. And secondly, in the way that they deal with those who are not Christians. So in verse 49 and 50, we have this scenario where the disciples see other Christians working for Jesus. And they don't like it. Master said, John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he's not one of us. He doesn't have a bad saying, disciple of Jesus. Like we have when we were called. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For whoever is not against you is for you. See, the disciples, they were, again, their pride was was hurt as they watched this man who's casting out demons, the very thing that they couldn't do. And they're so annoyed that they go to this man and they try and stop him. And they try to stop him because, verse 49, he's not one of us. He's not in our little club. He's not in our denomination. And they seem to think that Jesus is going to be happy with this, but he's not happy with this. He rebukes them for it. And he makes clear to them that they weren't to go into battle with those who were not one of them. Rather, they were to be peacemakers. Milne, the commentator, says Jesus' aim was to free the disciples from a narrow and judgmental spirit. They needed to understand and accept that there were true disciples outside the circle of the twelve. And what they needed to accept back then, we need to see and keep on seeing today. And every Christian in every age and every place needs to see this. There will always be other Christians. They're a bit different to us, who do things a bit different to us, who may be in a different denomination from us, 
They might do things that we're not entirely comfortable with. But when God uses them, we're to rejoice in that, not resent it. We're to be at peace with them and love them and not be battling with them. One commentator says there's a wideness in God's mercies that we would do well to emulate on earth, for we will certainly find it in heaven. Ryle says, we must praise God if souls are converted and Christ is magnified, no matter who the preacher may be and to what church he may belong. Happy are those who can say with Paul, if Christ be preached, I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. So Jesus gives him a, a lesson about being at peace, being peacemakers with those uh, who are believers but are slightly different to them. And then he gives them another lesson on how to be at peace uh, in verses 51 to verse 56. You can scan the verses, time's disappearing. Uh, And in these verses, uh, we see James and John, uh, the sons of thunder, and their fuse is lit. Jesus is passing through Samaria, and Jesus is looking for some hospitality in Samaria, but he, he doesn't get it. And so James and John, they have their finger not so much on the trigger, they have their finger now on the nuclear button. And they essentially say to Jesus, will we call down fire from heaven? Will we blast them? Let's bring some judgment here and wipe them out. And Jesus rebukes them for that attitude. And uh, sometimes I think it's fair to say that we, we feel something of that attitude. When the name of Christ is trashed, when God's word is, is set aside and cast out of every public place, where those who are in authority over us are so determined not to acknowledge the fact that God is there. Sometimes it makes us mad. Sometimes we want judgment to fall. We want these people silenced. We want these people removed from the positions that they may be in. But Jesus rebuked the disciples for that attitude. See, Jesus came on a mission not to blast sinners with God's judgment, but Jesus came on a mission to take the blast of God's judgment for us and from us. Jesus came not to make war with sinners, but through his grace, he came to offer terms of peace. So let me ask you this morning, are you, do you have peace with God? Do you have peace with God? The Savior came, he went to a cross, he lived, he died, he rose, so that we can have peace with God, so that we can go to have eternal peace when we die. And that offer is still open. But on the day that Jesus calls us from this world, or on the day that Jesus returns, if we have refused that offer, we will not meet a saviour. We will meet a judge. And we will face the judgment that Jesus offered to take in our place, but we refuse. A lesson about being peacemakers. Fifth point. We're almost done. A lesson about poverty. Verses 57 and verse 58. As they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the, the son of man has no, peace, has no uh, place to lay his head. And it's not here that Jesus was teaching that every Christian uh, is to be homeless and to live in poverty. Uh, there were times when Jesus stayed in nice places like Bethany with uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. There were times when the apostle Paul stayed in nice places like Lydia's house where he'd have been well looked after. But the point is that if Jesus calls us to leave behind nice places and riches and live in poverty, we must do it. Remember the rich young ruler. He wants eternal life. He wants all the the blessings that God can give. He's knocking at the church door. He wants to become a member. I think we'd have been trying to get him in the door as quick as possible. And Jesus 
looks into his life and he sees that he loves his money more than he loves Christ. So he says to him, all your stuff, sell it. Give it to the poor, then come follow me. And he wouldn't do it. And so he couldn't be Jesus' disciple. And he walked away sad. Unless he changed, he's still sad. He'll be forever sad. Sometimes following Jesus means uh, material poverty. Sometimes following Jesus in a world that uh, increasingly is hostile to the gospel, it means reputational poverty. People will not take you seriously. They'll think you're some kind of a crank. But even when we have to face poverty of different forms, uh, there's joy in it. How many people do you know that have riches, fame, popularity, power, and they're the most miserable people that you'll ever meet? I can't help thinking about uh, young lads in India. And I visited there several years ago now. They had nothing, nothing. But they were in Christ. They were training for a few years to, to become ministers. They were going back to the north of India, knowing fine well that likely they would lose their lives when they shared the gospel. And I've never met lads that had so much joy. Absolute poverty, materially. But this deep, eternal joy. And Jesus is teaching the disciples about that as some were coming and saying, we want to follow you, Jesus. And he's saying, well, are you, do you really want to follow me? Are you willing to, to pay the price? Sometimes the price seems high, doesn't it? But if you think the, the price seems too high, think again about Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, heaven rich, glory rich, yet for your sake, says Paul, he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. A lesson about poverty. Final word, a lesson about priorities. This is a kind of uncomfortable place for us to finish, but it's where we're going to finish. Because this is where the chapter finishes. Jesus said to another man, verse 59, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I'm going to hit pause there just for a second so we, we get a little bit of cultural insight here. Uh, William Barclay, the commentator, says, Jesus' words sound harsh, but they need not be so. In all probability, this man's father was not dead and not even nearly dead. His saying most likely meant, I will follow you after my father has died, whenever that might be, many years from now. Then I'll think about following you, Jesus. Still another said, verse 61, I will follow you, but... First, let me go and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Priorities. It's kind of shocking stuff, this, isn't it? Uncompromising. But it's meant to be. Because through this, we're being taught about the absolute priority that we're to give to Jesus. When we call him Lord, he comes first. Before work, before profit before hobbies, before friendships, before even family. We're being taught here about priorities. And I need to take this on board as much as you do, because I have to sit with it for longer than you do. But how are our priorities today? If we're calling ourselves disciples of Jesus, if we're calling him Lord, is that reflected in our time? Is that reflected in how we use our talents? Is that reflected in the things that we that we make our priorities. Because Jesus is teaching us it should be. And again, I think if we think this is too demanding, we need to get back to the cross and think about what Jesus did to prioritize your salvation and mine. He left heaven, the glory, the comfort of heaven, to come to this 
sin-cursed earth, knowing he would be despised, knowing he would be rejected, knowing that he would head for a cross. And he did it so that you and I can be saved. So we need to survey that cross every day as we hear the call of Jesus to follow him. And as long as we are surveying the cross, we'll be able to say with Isaac Watts, and we'll finish with these words, Stuart, in just in a, in a second, where the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Can we sing it? We'll stand for the benediction now. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with us all, both now and forevermore.